And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, June 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Army studies its sexual harassment problem but could do more about it, plus how research drives VA's approach to women veterans' health care. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, that global ransomware attack which hit multiple federal agencies. We now know the attackers were able to exploit vulnerabilities in a popular file transfer application. The Energy Department is among the confirmed victims, and new, de- and new details on the scope of the attack emerge... No, oh, I'm sorry... And new details on the scope of the attack emerge daily. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And it sounds like this is fast moving. What do we know now roughly about a week later, Justin? Yeah, well, we know that the Energy Department was one of those victims, as you mentioned. Uh, Multiple federal agencies, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, confirmed. Uh, So far, we don't know the identities of most of those. But what we do know is that this was a zero-day vulnerability in the MoveIt file transfer software. This emerged in early June. And very quickly, it was discovered that a ransomware gang had begun exploiting that vulnerability over Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, we at Federal News Network broke the news that the Energy Department's Oak Ridge Associated Universities is actually a contractor for the Energy Department, as well as the Energy's Energy's Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in New Mexico experienced data breaches due to the movement vulnerability. Our sources told us it was likely personal uh, information that was taken that was moved over this file transfer system and that was taken by this uh, ransomware gang. The Department of Energy confirmed that these records indeed were taken due to the MoveIt vulnerability, and they've taken steps to prevent further exposures. And was anyone actually ransomed, or did they get that kind of messages, or what's the status of the government, even though they know they were hit? Well, we know the Energy Department did receive two ransom uh, notices. But we don't know. We don't know whether that the data has actually been moved by the attackers. It hasn't hit the open internet, as far as folks have seen. And this ransomware gang actually did say that any government data they would delete. That they are mostly looking to ransom uh, corporations. But again, that's their word, so we don't really know if that's true or not. I guess some honor among horrible thieves, or <laughs> very little. And what other agencies do we think might have been hit? Well, CNN reported over the weekend that the Office of Personnel Management is one of the agencies that suffered a, an intrusion. Uh, we don't know the extent of that intrusion. Of course, OPM is the you know, HR department for the entire federal government, a lot of personnel data there. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. And again, as I mentioned, CISA confirmed that there were a small amount of agencies that did experience intrusions. I started reaching out to some of the agencies, some of the bigger ones at least, that might have been hit by this that we know used MoveIt. And in a little bit of good news, the Department of Veterans Affairs said that they did not have any impacts to VA or veterans' data. They were able to quickly patch their MoveIt software before anything happened. Well, maybe the hackers can speed up retirement processing when they get the OPM data relative to OPM. But seriously, what do we know about this gang? Anything? Yeah, it's called uh, CLOP. They've been around for a while and different iterations. They were taken down. They got spun back up, obviously. There were, you know, Russian speakers, one of the biggest ransomware groups out there. The State Department actually just announced a $10 million bounty for information linking the uh, CLOP ransomware attacks to any foreign governments. But so far, we don't have any confirmed connection between the group and, say, the Russian government. So there hasn't been allegations, specific allegations, that this was espionage. And as CISA Director Jen Easterly told us during a briefing last week, a reporter's briefing last week, it looks like this was more of an opportunistic attack. They found a vulnerability in a widely used tool and exploited it. And this Move It tool, I'm surprised this is still in use nowadays with all of the cloud storage and so forth, but it's pretty widespread in federal systems? Yeah, we know there are you know, about a dozen federal agencies that, according to contracting records, use it. Most of the customers uh, are in the United States, some in Europe. It's a widely used tool for moving you know, files 
securely, or at least that's that's how they put it. Uh, we know that there were state agencies breached. Um, we know that there were corporations that were breached. So this is pretty widely used uh, in the United States. The cybersecurity firm Census reported that there were more than 3,000 hosts on the open internet running instances of Move It earlier this month. Um, about a third of those were in the financial services industry, 8% in government and military. Uh, Emily Austin is a security research manager and senior research researcher at Census, and she talked about how attackers uh, could go after these file transfer softwares. They're kind of the perfect target. A lot of these tools, if you go and look on their marketing site, above the fold, they talk about, we allow you to securely transfer files in ways that are compliant with GDPR, PCI, HIPAA. And they're often adopted by these enterprise organizations as well. So large customers, large amounts of data being transferred in these highly regulated industries. And on top of that, a lot of them do have exposed web interfaces. So you have this sort of trifecta of lots of data from highly regulated industries without access on the web. And of course, what threat actor wouldn't go after that if you're financially motivated? I wonder if the SEC uses it to take in data from industries it regulates anyway. And the incident that we just had, what I've read is this is not quite up to the solar winds order of magnitude of danger. What have you learned, Justin? Yeah, that, that's a point CISA director Jen Easterly was quick to make during that call with the reporters last week. She said, the agency is not tracking any, quote unquote, significant impacts to the civilian.gov enterprise. Uh, as they understand it, this was not used to gain additional access into targeted organizations. So this is not on the magnitude of the solar winds espionage campaign that we know uh, impacted nine federal agencies and, and where, you know, it was likely Russian spies that were able to, to take data from those agencies, sensitive data from those agencies at that. But CISA said it's a serious incident. They are still tracking uh, the impacts, trying to figure out exactly what was taken. Right now, we, they're not aware of any impacts to military or intelligence community organizations. So it looks like this might be uh just down to the civilian side of government right now. Yeah, more like solar breeze. And so what happens next? I mean, is there a patch for Move It or what should agencies do now? Yeah, the, 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 sorry, the vulnerability that was exploited uh, widely in early June, that patch was released pretty quickly. And uh, CISA says all agencies have by now applied that patch uh, where they needed to. Actually, Progress Software, the owner of the Move It software, uh, released yet another patch for a third critical vulnerability in the file transfer software in less than one month. So there's still patches that are coming out that folks need to pay attention to if they run that specific instance. But we're still trying to figure out exactly you know, who experienced an intrusion, what may have been taken, and what's going to happen with the data that was taken. So this is going to be something where there's a long uh, kind of tail to it. All right. Good reporting by Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you, Tom. And check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how research drives VA's approach to women veterans' health care. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Veterans Health Administration has been steadily improving the way it delivers health care to a growing segment of the veteran population, women. Research has underpinned many of the care initiatives, and my next guest has been behind much of that research. Now she's a recipient of a special VA Secretary's Award. Becky Yano is director and co-founder of the VA Women's Health Research Network, and she joins me now from Los Angeles. Ms. Yano, good to have you with us. Thank you so much. Let's start with the here and now. A lot of the issues that VA had in treating women they have overcome over the past decade or decade and a half now. What are your current research priorities? What is of concern right now in the delivery of health care to women veterans? It's a really important question because I think that we are continuing to make really important progress in high priority areas like post-traumatic stress disorder, military sexual trauma, post-deployment health, access to care, and a lot of new areas like reproductive health, uh, rural health, primary care, and areas like depression and anxiety and serious mental illness. 
And then areas like long-term care and healthy aging. When we started, there was not a single published article on older women veterans. It was like they didn't age. It was just not on anyone's radar. So we've done a lot of work in that area. For me, I think the most important areas are really about better understanding how VA women's health care is organized and really what it should look like. Also thinking about gender tailoring care. Whenever we see gender disparities in quality or patient experience, the ideas really aren't about trying to make care equal to that of men. It's about making it fit for women veterans. So a lot of our work now is about transforming healthcare, about making sure we hear from women veterans, not in our ivory towers in academia, but really get in the trenches alongside the providers and the staff and the women so that we're designing and testing interventions that work for them. That's really what's going to eliminate disparities. And if you really look at it, the word women is not really one thing either. There's a variety of backgrounds and races and so forth within the rubric of women. So it's really a lot of things you've got to look at. Absolutely. And in fact, while the Women's Health Research Network per se does not span all gender identities in terms of men's health and the like, the reality is, is we fostered a lot of work in an LGBTQ plus research work group as well to make sure we're thinking about the range of gender identities and thinking about their experiences as well when they come to the VA for care. And that idea of healthy aging, I guess, is really important because in the greater population, women outlive men in general. So you have widows that might be aging all by themselves. And the social support among women veterans is a challenge and making sure that they have access to services and the supports they need in the community and in the VA. It's really practically untapped research right now. So we're working to reach out to some of the researchers who focus on geriatrics and healthy aging to make sure that they realize that we want them to include women in their studies. And we want to make sure that they are thinking about the measures they need to include and the partnerships they have to have with women veterans to design care that is effective. Yeah, so it sounds like if you add this all up, the real concern is not this medicine or that shot or this piece of surgery, but really the whole person and the context of that person seems to be what's driving a lot of healthcare initiatives these days. I couldn't have said it better myself. It really is thinking about tailoring services, understanding contexts. You know, from a research perspective, we were trained to try and like statistically adjust away for individual characteristics. But you and I can't adjust away our histories, our contexts, our families, our neighborhoods, our risk behaviors. And doctors and nurses and social workers and like shouldn't be trying to do that either, right? We have to work with veterans where they are, and our research needs to do the same. We're speaking with Becky Yano. She's director and co-founder of the Women's Health Research Network at the Veterans Health Administration. And let's talk about methodologies for research. I mean, in some areas of medicine, you do research on cadavers or in clinical settings of people getting certain treatments. It sounds like there might be a lot of data-driven and metadata-driven types of studies that your work would entail. Yeah, I was thinking in one level, there's not a research methodology I don't like, but that's not actually very true. I love the power of health services research. It's whole people, as you said. It's studying patients, their providers, their staff, the clinics, the hospitals, whole systems of care. My training is in epidemiology, which is like infectious disease, but most of my work is in chronic disease. And I think about in epidemiology, we were trained to think about being exposed to COVID, exposed to bad eating. I think of it as exposure to the healthcare system, exposure to your doctors. How do we improve what you're exposed to in that environment from the moment you leave your house to coming back through the healthcare system and back home? So in that area, it's really thinking about what are the key ingredients, if you will, in VA healthcare that make a recipe for good outcomes. The other key methodology that I work in is called implementation science. And basically, I don't think most people know that it takes about 17 years on average for research evidence to make it into practice, which means let's say there's some game-changing cancer care that comes out. It may be a decade or more before you and I see that. But implementation science is actually about changing that timeline to make things happen faster. So it's interesting. VA is a global leader, actually, in implementation science. We're the largest integrated delivery system in the United States. 
that means we need to know how to implement evidence faster, better, and scale it up more than others. So, you know, in this case, I'm randomizing whole medical centers, not just people, to get the whole medical center to do practice in a different way. So those are the kinds of methods that I like to use. Do you run into resistance of people that is that are operating the medical centers? Because that's a whole other question one of these days for VA. The people running the medical centers is a challenge for VA often. And they just simply say, well, you're not going to put me under that microscope. That's a great question. The reason why implementation science is important is because it expects there to be different challenges, kind of entropy, people not wanting to change business as usual. And so the interventions we use in implementation science think about individual behavior, organizational behavior, and actually address those things explicitly. So I'll do things like bring together the frontline doctor with the head of primary care, with the head of women's health, with the medical center director, and even a VA network director on high, pull them together into a common meeting. And I have methods where basically I level the playing field so that everyone's voices have equal weight. And then we work through how to actually tackle some of those barriers. Because if you look at implementation science in that 17-year research to clinical deployment cycle, I mean, if you postulate that in the long run we're all dead, 17 years is a really long time, and it's probably much longer from the first implementation of the pioneers 17 years later till everybody is doing it. That could be another 10 years. Exactly. I mean, one of my recent studies, and it's what I love about what I am able to do in the VA, is that we worked through what's called an evidence-based quality improvement approach to helping VA medical centers gender tailor their primary care models for women veterans' needs. And during that study, we found that that improved how primary care teams work together. It improved physicians' gender sensitivity. It actually lowered burnout all at the same time, frontline providers were improving care in measurable ways. And all of those practices have continued five, six, seven years out to make these evidence-based changes because we showed them how to use their own resources in the medical center to make a difference for the veterans they serve. Sounds like a lot of the work you do could serve almost any type of program, even outside of medicine, that kind of research-based feedback. I wanted to return to a couple things you mentioned early, and that was PTSD and sexual assault that occurs in the military. And this is a seemingly intractable problem for the military, despite what Congress does and the pronouncements of leadership. Do you ever want to take the military kind of collectively by the collar and say to them, look, this is not just an instance of a crime while under your watch, but the infliction of something that can harm someone for a lifetime, which means we're going to inherit it as PTSD. We actually were asked to brief the Department of Defense Independent Review Commission on Sexual Assault in the Military. And I was in the fortunate position to organize the leading experts in that area for women's health. And during that briefing, we actually made many of those points that we do indeed inherit the misadventures and exposures that happen during military service. And we're able to communicate the longstanding adverse impacts on health, family, home, And the recommendations that came out of that commission acknowledged those and, in fact, talked about increasing access to evidence-based practices for those. But at the end of the day, we need prevention. Sure. And when looking at the holistic whole person of women in the veteran system, have you had findings or discoveries that actually can translate back to improving care for men? That is to say, value to everybody in the veteran system. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we're thinking about gender tailoring, it is about thinking about what is needed for that veteran and making sure that we're being mindful of any kind of intervention that is going to improve their outcomes. So one example is right now we have someone who's developing a new intervention to help men who've had histories of military sexual trauma. Most military sexual trauma care and it's not a condition, it's exposure, but most care for the consequences of military sexual trauma may end up being in a women's clinic. And so there has not been very much, if any, research on how do we develop a men's clinic focused on people with those exposures. And so we're working with someone right now who's testing an intervention 
at VA Greater Los Angeles and wanting to do that in a multi-site trial. And it builds on 25 years of work on military sexual trauma research on women. And in the course of all of this research, do you ever get a chance to walk down a hallway and talk to a female veteran and say, how's it going? What could we do better? I do. I do. And in fact, that was what inspired my work in harassment reduction. And I make a point of always reaching out to a woman veteran or an active duty service woman when I'm in the airport or anywhere that I can tell that she has provided service. I just say hello and I tell them what I do and I thank them for their service. And they're always surprised that there's research in the VA. They're even more surprised there's women's health research in VA. But I think that one of the things that we learned early on from just these anecdotes in the hallways is that women were coming to the VA once and not necessarily coming back. And we started to talk to women and try and find out why. And one of the reasons was I get harassed when I come to the VA. So it's really hard to come see my doctor if I have to run the gauntlet. And so we included questions about that in one of my surveys and found that one in four women veterans were being harassed on their way to see their VA doctor and that that was associated with delayed and missed care. And what's different in working in the VA as a researcher is I knew that was going to be bad news for people up the chain. We reported those results immediately and they immediately responded with, we need to better understand what works out there to combat harassment. They launched a national end harassment campaign, and then they funded us to actually do more work in that area. And it's been a tremendous journey. In fact, the rates have gone down from about 25% to closer to 13% because of national initiatives based on talking to some women veterans in a hallway. All right. Well, we'll end on that. We'll call it a success in progress story. Becky Yano is director and co-founder of the Women's Health Research Network at the Veterans Health Administration and a recipient of a Secretary's R&D Award. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, smart contractors are preparing for what could be a solid fourth quarter. But first... The Army studies its sexual harassment problem, but could do more about it. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The top echelon is aware the Army has a problem with sexual harassment and abuse, drug usage, suicide. In fact, since 2019, it's produced nearly 50 studies on these problems. But most of them don't include specific recommendations for dealing with the problems. And that's according to an internal meta-study done by the Army Audit Agency and obtained by the Project on Government Oversight. POGO senior investigator Nick Schwellenbach joins me with more. And Nick, it looks like they did a study of studies to find out that, great, we've got a lot of admiring of these problems in the Army, but not much guidance on what to do about them? Is that the general thing that's going on here? Yeah, you've got the gist of it. And often I'm skeptical of studying studies, but this one I think is useful because it found that many of these studies aren't generating what it deemed, quote unquote, actionable recommendations, recommendations to change policies, practices, rules, collect more data, for instance. And it also found that among the few studies that did have actionable recommendations over a three-year period of 2019 through the end of fiscal year 2022, the Army had taken action on none of those. Okay. So these cover a range of issues. The sexual harassment, sexual abuse has been of great interest to Congress. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on the military services to finally do something about these problems. What did the study of studies find that the Army Audit Agency did? Well, so this audit looked at research on, quote unquote, soldiers' harmful behaviors. And you mentioned many of those, drug abuse, suicide, sexual harassment, sexual assault, domestic abuse. And it looked at how the Army is overseeing this sprawling research portfolio. And it looked at you know, 47 studies, as you mentioned earlier. And it looked at the organizations funding those studies. These are different parts of the Army. It looked to see if they were tracking 
and recommendations, if any, that came out of the studies. It looked to see if these different army sponsoring organizations were talking to each other so they weren't unnecessarily duplicating research to get the most bang for the buck, if you will, from the research dollars flowing into various people who are conducting these studies. And they were also looking to see, and this is more of a minor part of the Army Audit Agency's work, but they also looked to see if the research lined up with the Army's prevention strategy. The Army's prevention strategy aims to have a more sort of comprehensive approach to preventing these problems. And the Army Audit Agency found that most of the research funded really looked at sort of the moments or the days leading up to the suicide, a sexual assault, and trying to like intervene, but more at the last minute. I found a disconnect there. And to me, one of the more galling findings from this Army Audit Agency report is that back in 2010, the Army commissioned a high-profile study on suicide inside the Army's ranks. And this Army report, you know, which got a lot of press attention at the time, said the Army should improve its research oversight, so centralize governance of research so it can avoid duplicating studies, so it can track recommendations. And more than 12 years later, the Army hasn't done that yet. Right. So there's kind of a sclerosis that has set in on the Army, which I guess to its credit, it's aware of the issues and they have been pointed out to the Army and the Army's got to be aware of it, the suicides and the sexual assaults. But it seems stuck in study rather than moving forward in action. And and I guess my question, the Army Audit Agency, how does that differ from the Inspector General of the Army, which seems to be a logical place for this kind of study to take place? Yeah, the Defense Department has what we know as the Defense Department Inspector General. That's a statutory Inspector General like IGs that we see throughout the federal government. And then each of the military services has their own inspector general, which is a military service IG. And the roots of those go back actually to the Revolutionary War. There was an IG back in the original Revolutionary Army and the military services have had these kinds of internal watchdogs, but they tend to be what are known as command watchdogs. They report to sort of the leadership, but then the services also have audit agencies and the IGs and audit agencies sort of have a division of labor. The IGs tend to do investigations into individual allegations of misconduct, whereas the audit agencies look at more broad reviews of our policies being followed, look at more systemic practices. And so you have the Army Audit Agency, you have the Naval Audit Service, and you have the Air Force Audit Agency as well. Got it. We are speaking with Nick Schwellenbach. He's senior investigator at the Project on Government Oversight. So this latest Army Audit Agency study of the studies of sexual harassment, abuse, suicide, etc., drug use, was not publicly released, and you had to get it on a FOIA it seems like that would be something they would want to get out. Yeah, I mean, I have long thought that the military service audit agency should be proactively making their reports public. The Naval Audit Service and the Air Force Audit Agency at least provide a public listing of their reports, and then you can file a Freedom of Information Act request for the reports that you see on their public lists. The Army Audit Agency doesn't have a public list at all, so I foiled a list of the Army Audit Agency's reports, and when I saw this on that list, I then filed a subsequent open records request to get this audit report. And they did provide it. They weren't hiding it exactly. They were just not making it public. Yeah, there was no, in my opinion, active concealment of this report. It just isn't their practice to make these reports public or a listing of the reports public. And to their credit, they've processed my Freedom of Information Act request very quickly. I mean, I would say, you know, gold standard in terms of federal agency processing a FOIA request. So it may be that they are also a little known agency that doesn't receive many FOIA requests, but they were quite prompt in processing all of my requests for records. And one of the interesting twists in this was that the Army discovered that the other reports that had not made very many recommendations for fixing these problems didn't necessarily set out to create recommendations. They had a totally different orientation on the nature of these studies that were being done, that is as almost scientific or looks at, as opposed to programmatic attempts to get at the root of the problem. 
they were looking at it almost academically and detached from recommendations. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be unreasonable to expect 100% of studies funded by the Army to always lead to actionable recommendations. You know, sometimes they're doing more what's known as sort of foundational research, trying to understand the nature of a problem. And often their conclusion is we don't have enough data to reach a definitive conclusion or to offer like an informed recommendation. So I think 100% is maybe unreasonable. But what this Army Audit Agency found was 89% of the 47 studies funded over a three-year period 89% had no actionable recommendations. That is a strikingly high percentage of studies that have no recommendations to deal with these very live, very severe problems that the Army's facing. I mean, people's lives are being lost. There's a really severe sexual assault problem, especially in the Army. Some of the most recent data points are very troubling concerning the Army, as well as in the suicide domain. It has the highest rate of suicide among active duty members than any of the armed services by a wide margin, I should add, more than double that of the Navy or Air Force and 40 or about 50% higher than the Marine Corps. So there are these big problems and these aren't new problems either. We've been studying these issues for more than 20 years now. Uh, I mentioned a 2010 report that flagged some serious oversight problems with suicide research. So at a certain point, you know, how much foundational research are we doing versus pivoting to doing something about what we know? And so that number 89%, in my opinion, is strikingly high, and it seems strikingly high to the Army Audit Agency authors as well. So this then could prompt the Army to maybe come up with recommendations for itself to get after some of these things, more numerous and more comprehensive recommendations than it's had to date. Yeah, so the Army, uh, in their response to the audit agency, said we will address these problems by the end of fiscal year 2024, so the end of September of next year. So the Army is pledging to do something about this. But again, the Army has made pledges before, and there have been recommendations in the past. I mentioned those from more than 12 years ago. So I think it's really up to Congress to really hold the Army's feet to the fire on these issues. and and make sure it's doing something about it. So this is just a really a slice of the Army's response to these various internal personnel crises, but it's a vital part of the response, you know, to have data-driven, research-backed solutions to these problems. Nick Schwellenbach is senior investigator at the Project on Government Oversight. Good piece of work you dug up here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Good to be on. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, smart contractors are preparing for what could be a solid fourth quarter. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Only a couple of weeks until that magic date, the start of the final quarter of the federal fiscal year. It's now or never for contractors to make their sales goals. Some advice from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And it's been a squirrely year because people didn't know what was going to happen with the debt ceiling and all of this. That's behind us now, presumably. And here we are. So what's the best thing contractors should do now with just a couple of weeks to go to the last quarter? Tom, the big thing that contractors need to be doing right now is to make an effort. If you're going to be successful from now until the end of the fiscal year, you and your company have to have both feet firmly in the federal market. And while that might sound obvious to a lot of companies, I can assure you from my experience that it's not. Amazingly, you have companies that come in, particularly around this time of year, who haven't really participated in the market. They've got one foot in, one foot out. They have great solutions, products that have high visibility in the commercial market, Tom, but they don't really have that federal presence and they don't have the relationships. Yet these are people that want to succeed in the last quarter of the year when so much money is being obligated, but you're competing against companies that have been here all along and who themselves have both feet in this market So if you're not making a commensurate effort, you're going to find this to be an uphill battle. 
Right. You can't really come into the market thinking, oh, this is when they spend all their money. Let's join in because you have to do spade work that sometimes takes a year to be able to get any agency attention at all. That's exactly right. The time to have a successful fourth quarter is based on largely what you're doing in the first quarter and second quarters, Tom. That's when you are out talking to people about what your new solutions are, introducing yourself if you haven't already done so, uh, making sure that you're strengthening those relationships so that agencies know what you have and know who you are. And also they can trust you as part of the federal business market. Whereas if you're coming in from outside the market, you know, we have to remember this is a very risk averse marketplace and new market entries, sometimes they succeed, but very often they find themselves lacking that element of trust and reliability that so many federal buyers are looking for. And what about the vehicle strategy? I mean, it used to be you had to have a GSA schedule contract as kind of a ground stakes to be able to get into the market. Now there's all of these big IDIQs. They're all being renewed. So how does someone that is new to the market even begin to approach it since you may not be able to get a slot on those IDIQs or they have open seasons, some of them, some don't, so that you're at least positioned for the next buying season. Tom, you're exactly right. Contractors, especially newer market entries, have to be prepared to answer the how question. How do I buy from you? And you mentioned that a lot of times that's an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract, IDIQ. And if you're not on a GSA schedule, the best way to sell through those is to partner with somebody who has a contract. So for example, if you have a federal client that says, hey, I really want to buy from you through NASA Soup. If you're a technology company, the best thing to do is try to go to find a company that has a NASA Soup contract that you can partner with. They're the prime, but you sell through their contract and you're able to get the business. That's really the route that's open to you through pretty much all of these IDIQ contracts right now. None of them really have on-ramps between now and the buying season. I'm not expecting that we're going to have any major ones come online unless all of the protest problems on the NIH contract mysteriously disappear, which I'm sure NIH and its buyers would be happy to find. But otherwise, as a contractor, you want to have at least two or three ways. And if it's not IDIQ, are you a small business? Can you talk about a small business set aside? Can you partner with the small business or how well versed are you in simplified acquisitions so that you can sell and promote the simplified acquisition option to an agency? We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And by the way, you're pointing out that there are several audit issues for schedule contractors to be prepared for. So even once you get that schedule, it's not exactly adult swim all the time. Tom, it's not. And I think that it's important that schedule contractors know what's coming for them in the event of a pre-award audit. Very often you get these during a renewal period, although you can get an audit at any time, depending on what's going on. So there are three things that I'm telling people that GSA inspector general auditors are focusing on right now. One should not be a surprise, Section 889B compliance this is the provision that prohibits contractors from using covered telecommunications and other technology anywhere in their enterprise, not just in support of federal contracts, Tom, but anywhere in their enterprise. So these are companies like Huawei, ZTE, Angzu, but there are others. So contractors are required now to make a reasonable inquiry to see whether or not they have any of that type of equipment in their enterprise. And if they do, they're supposed to take steps to either remove it or mitigate it in lieu of doing a federal contract. And that's now becoming an audit area where the IG really wants to see that you conducted that reasonable inquiry and what you found. Another area is cost buildup information. And Tom, I have to tell you, this one blows my mind. Anyone who knows anything about scheduled contracting knows that it's a commercial item acquisition contract that's entirely or almost entirely price-based. So the idea that an auditor would be asking you for cost buildup information, it's not even really an apples to oranges comparison. It's more like you know, apples to a Chevrolet Impala type thing. 
So if you're a contractor and you have an IG that's requesting cost buildup information, that would be a time when I would recommend that you get some outside help, either qualified consultant or experienced government contract counsel to help you push back on that, because I'm not sure that that's a reasonable request. And what exactly do they mean by cost buildup? Well, cost buildup, Tom, is where you have to go and show as a contractor how you arrive at your labor rates and or the other rates that you're charging a government customer. So instead of your price being based on what you're selling uh, in the commercial market for or what you're selling to other entities for, it's based on you building up your costs. What's your overhead? What's your direct labor? You know, what are your indirect costs? And you put all of those components together and then you arrive at a price. You got to put some profit on that most of the time, Mm -hmm. but it's an entirely different way. And typically we see cost type contracts in the non-commercial item arena. And a lot of companies straddle both, but regardless of whether or not a company can do both cost or pricing information, what really should control is the type of contract it is. And in the schedules arena, that's price. So cost-based buildup could generally be out of bounds with some very limited exceptions in the schedules program. Right. Those are not cost plus contracts to begin with. That's right. All right. And just a final question on your call that you've made public for a stand-down day in acquisition training. That's right, Tom. One of the things I'm calling for is that GSA have a stand-down day specifically in the schedules program for training on all of the new or newer issues that are coming out in the program. GSA, I will tell you right now, I think is doing a much better job in terms of training both contractors and the acquisition workforce than they were doing 10 years ago. So they're to be applauded for that. But Tom, there's nothing like a stand-down day to get the attention of your organization to say, wait a minute, we're stopping everything we're doing because this is really important. So whether it's the guidance on allowing contractors to easily obtain inflation-related price adjustments, whether it's a discussion of how companies can and cannot achieve labor rates to the contracting officer's satisfaction, what type of information the contracting officer should be asking for, all the things going on with the Trade Agreements Act and some of the other things that impact scheduled contracting, not to mention GSA's new sustainability initiatives. It's time to have a stand-down day to stop and focus. While contractors generally aren't wild about their contracting officers being taken away from training, I think in this type of situation, they might welcome it because it would bring some more cohesion between the stated policy and what actually happens in practice. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Is your agency up to speed on the latest cloud computing strategies? Join us for day two of Federal News Network's Cloud Exchange. It starts today at 1. Today's theme, healthcare. Hear from top federal cloud and technology experts like Nick Weber of the NIH. Sign up now at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, June 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. 
Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Army studies its sexual harassment problem but could do more about it. Plus, how research drives VA's approach to women veterans' health care. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Transportation Security Administration is focused on better customer experience as part of its broader IT transformation goals. TSA's cloud infrastructure is helping the agency make better use of its data, allowing the agency to keep making improvements to the way it delivers services. The agency is also looking for some opportunities to automate and simplify back office functions as part of Federal News Network's cloud exchange. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with TSA's Chief Information Officer, Yemi Oshinaye. When it comes to transformation, one of the really cool things is we're transforming how we build and deploy systems using human-centered design of meeting the customer where they are, meeting your user where your user is, and using the user to drive that, using automation wherever we can so that we can build systems faster and more accurate, and then testing and making sure security is a prime part of things. Now, where the transformation comes is when we take user-centered design and customer experience to really drive home that holistic understanding of what it is to automate, what does it do for the user, and what what is that experience that they feel? So that each and every time you come back through an airport, or, or if you're on rail, or if you're on, even on the metro or something like that, you have a better experience each time. So that's how you know we kind of transform how we build, and we want to transform how we look and get feedback from our, our users and our customers. This is an interesting thread that we keep coming back to is this idea of IT and the overlap with customer experience. That's, of course, a very big administration-wide goal. Let's spend a little bit more time on the CX side of things. How are you looking to, from your perspective at TSA, improve that customer experience for an awful lot of customers on any given day? Yeah, I always tell folks, if you're keeping score, most things have IT in it right now. So (laughs) it gives us a really big job. We have a chief innovation officer at TSA that also focuses a lot on customer experience. And where we partner is looking at the customer experience goes beyond IT, but IT is here as an enabler. So we try to look at each area from a customer experience perspective and figure out, you know, how can I help? How can I help, you know, the time from you going through the checkpoint be shorter and a better experience? How can we help? the technology track and get feedback of what we can do better. And also, how can we ascertain what you're feeling when you're going through a check? What are you feeling as you're on transportation? Because that helps us understand what the next things to fix is. And if we do it well, at certain points, if we collect all that data, we can try to be predictive and really show you something. Well, how would you like it if we did X or Y? And then you, you can respond to that. So IT in those areas is automate tracking and then using that information and data to get things better. You know, it seems like one of the huge drivers of everything that we're talking about here is the data-driven analysis of it all, using the data that TSA collects on any given day to drive that day-to-day decision-making. How is TSA's IT infrastructure keeping up with all this and evolving to meet these needs? Well, I will tell you, cloud is one of the ways the IT infrastructure keeps up. Cloud makes things scalable pretty easy. Uh, You can even automate the scalability. It it detects when data kind of gets more voluminous and then the scales with it. Understanding what data to put where, how to access data and the speed that's necessary. You know, it helps us re-architect things. So as we're using cloud, it enables us to be better and faster with data. And oh, by the way, we actually let users share and access their own data democratizing, self-service, that allows us to be focused on some of the more harder analytics that we have to do in the IT shop while the users get in the data that they need. Since we've been talking about the cloud, let's maybe drill down a little bit deeper there. Just in terms of the infrastructure, the layout of that cloud environment, is it a hybrid cloud, is it a multi-cloud environment? Just tell us a little bit more of what we're looking at under the hood here. Yeah, well, under the hood, it's all of the above. <laughs> so it, it's really good for us to have a lot of variety. And as we look at cloud, you know, there are different types of clouds, right? So as a software, as a service, we leverage that for quick builds. And our goal is even to have uh, citizen development. So we, as we pick the right SaaS platforms, we enable users to build their own products as long as it's secure and they follow out the guidelines. Then we have our infrastructure as a service. And that's where, you know, IT kind of rolls their sleeves up and looks at how can we build the best environment, most robust. How do we have 
all the right CPUs to be able to support really, really fast moving data that goes to the edge. And then there's platforms. The platforms are the best of breed. It makes it easier to move workloads around and be able to share information and share data. So, I mean, really, it's it's all over the place. Even though we have some on-prem environments, those on-prem environments, we're looking to connect that back to cloud. So we can take information from on-prem to cloud and move it back and forth. So it's almost seamless to the user and they're not even sure what's going on in the background. Very interesting what you were saying about the citizen development there. Tell me a little bit more of that and how that's kind of a driver of this whole innovation ecosystem. Yeah, and kind of like I said before, uh, IT is everywhere. Uh, so it becomes a large, large thing to, to manage. Also, the speed of business demand moves at the speed of light. So the best way to continue to keep up with it is actually have a user take care of some of those business problems on their own. Uh, so what we do is we put out policy, put out guidelines, and then we're the guardrails so that users can actually build what they want. We've actually had uh, one of our staff acting as a user built the system on their own without having to hire a contractor or whatnot. So what that does is say, okay, well, if you can build that system, I'll work on the more complex systems. And it, it provides you for scale, more of a human scale. So we can leverage almost everyone in an agency to start to build really cool uh, systems. All right. Very cool. Um, what? We've been talking a lot about the experience that TSA delivers, some cool opportunities there to improve the mission. The flip side of things is always security as well. There are evolving threats TSA needs to stay on top of. Let's spend a little bit of time there. How is TSA managing those emerging threats and how does the cloud fit into all of that? Yeah, one of the really great things is that because TSA is a security company, you have everyone in TSA that thinks about security and not just security as a physical construct, but security and cybersecurity. We educate each staff about what to do in terms of cyber, understanding where the threats come from. Some of the biggest threats to see as users and as an IT shop is a more sophisticated social engineering threats. Those emails start to look very real nowadays. Uh, you're not sure if that's really a phishing email or maybe that is someone contacting you. Uh, so what we do is we try to train our users as well. So we'll mimic those emails and make them look very real. Uh, there's every now and then I get an email. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Let me take a second look. <laughs> and that's where, that's by design because we want folks to pay attention to the key things that are different between a real email and a phishing email. Because once you click on a link, you can actually cause some severe damage to your environment. So we're focused on that. And then we're focused on larger threats, like folks that may want to hack into our system, folks that may want to hack into the transportation arena, really educating our partners about the best way to build a secure cyber environment. Let's spend a little bit of time looking ahead. Of course, this pace of change is not going to slow down anytime soon here. This is going to be the kind of the new normal, uh, so what we hear a lot these days. What do you see as some of the emerging needs for TSA, how are things changing on the IT front? Where do you see things going? I see us in more cloud. I see us using our efforts to really test out what we're doing with customer experience, because ultimately that's the end user. That's what we're trying to strive for. So getting more feedback, more insights, creating better journey maps of how we build that out. Uh, I see a lot more automation because IT demand is going to scale. Business demand is going to scale. The way to keep up with it is going to be through automation. And I see uh, tons more collaboration because as we move forward, we have a generation coming into the workforce that's going to think different, act different. And so we need to collaborate how to meet the demands of that new workforce. Yemi Oshinaye, TSA's Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jerry Heckman during day one of Federal News Network's Cloud Exchange. The event continues today and tomorrow starting at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register and tune in at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how research drives VA's approach to women veterans' health care. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 